Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 21. We have another really exciting episode for you this week, covering everything from traumatic hemothoraces to orthopedic trauma and even electrolyte abnormalities. So basically we're talking about everything. Pretty much. Let's get started with a rapid review. How about we start with some neuropearls we've covered in the past. Jeff, what's the treatment for a radial nerve palsy? Treatment for a radial nerve palsy is supportive with a wrist splint, as the condition is typically self-limited. Does VP shunt obstruction occur more frequently proximally or distally, and what causes each type of obstruction? VP shunt obstruction occurs proximally more frequently than it does distally. Proximal VP shunt obstruction occurs due to choroid plexus obstruction or increased protein within the CSF. Distal VP shunt obstruction occurs due to abdominal pseudocyst formation, which typically presents with abdominal pain due to the large size of the cyst. What's the most common cause of a bilateral Bell's palsy? Well, that would be Lyme disease, which is definitely the most common cause of a bilateral Bell's. Remember that a peripheral facial nerve palsy can be distinguished from the central ones based on involvement of the forehead. Great review. Let's dive into the new material. All right, you're up first. A patient presents with right arm pain after a fall. The x-ray, which we have up on the blog, confirms a Galeazzi fracture. Which of the following exams will evaluate for the most commonly associated nerve injury in this type of fracture? Is it A, the ability to make a thumbs up sign, B, the ability to make an okay sign, C, sensation to the index finger, or D, sensation to the little finger? So this is clearly a multi-step question. You need to first remember what a Galeazzi fracture is, then determine which nerve is at risk, and finally determine how to test for a deficit of that nerve. If you look at the image on the blog post, you'll see that a Galeazzi fracture is a fracture of the middle to distal third of the radius, with dislocation or subluxation of the distal radio-ulnar joint. This fracture pattern puts the anterior interosseous nerve at risk. And to evaluate the function of this nerve, you need to test the ability to make an OK sign, which is answer choice B. Perfect logic. The anterior interosseous nerve, or AIN, is a branch of the median nerve that controls the flexor pollicis longus and the flexor digitorum profundus. Paralysis of both of these muscles will mean loss of the pinch mechanism, which can be evaluated by having the patient make the OK sign. Obviously, this requires an emergent orthopedics consultation for emergent repair. And don't forget to monitor the patient for compartment syndrome while the orthopod comes down. Let me run through the other answer choices here also. The ability to make a thumbs up sign, choice A, that tests the motor function of the radial nerve. Choice C, sensation to the index finger, that's a test of the function of the median nerve, but will not test for the interosseous branch. Lastly, choice D, sensation to the little finger, that tests for ulnar nerve damage. And since you just mentioned the ulnar nerve, do you recall which spinal nerve roots make up the ulnar nerve? Usually the ulnar nerve originates at the C8-T1 spinal nerve roots. You're up next. Which of the following is a common cause of hypomagnesemia? Is it A, antacid use, B, hypoparathyroidism, C, hypothyroidism, or D, malnutrition? The answer here is choice D. Malnutrition is definitely a common cause of hypomagnesemia. You can find this in chronic alcoholics, children with restricted diets, or even in the elderly. Yeah, although not listed here, there are a few other reasons for hypomagnesemia to be aware of. You can also find it in patients on diuretics, those taking aminoglycosides, and even those on PPIs. Patients with hypomagnesemia usually have concurrent hypokalemia, so definitely be on the lookout for multiple electrolyte abnormalities. And although this question specifically told us that the patient has hypomagnesemia, patients usually don't present with such information. Hypomagnesemia typically presents with much more vague symptoms. Common symptoms include muscle cramping and diffuse weakness. 
More serious complications include vertigo, ataxia, seizures, increased reflexes, and cardiac induction abnormalities. You can also see dysrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, PVCs, ventricular tachycardia, and even torsades. And the treatment here is also quite simple. Replete the magnesium. If giving it intravenously, 1 to 2 grams over 10 minutes to an hour is pretty standard. Magnesium is given slowly intravenously to prevent hypotensive episodes. In cases of torsade, it can be pushed more rapidly though. While the next question loads up, let's look at the other answer choices. Antacids often contain magnesium, so they lead to hypermagnesemia. Similarly, hypothyroidism can lead to hypermagnesemia. And lastly, there's no relationship between hypoparathyroidism and hypomagnesemia. All right, you're up for this one. A 24-year-old man is brought to the ED after sustaining a stab wound to the right chest. He is diagnosed with a hemothorax and a 38 French chest tube is placed. Which of the following best predicts the need for urgent thoracotomy? Is it A, initial chest tube output of greater than 1 liter of blood? B, initial chest tube output of greater than 10 mLs per kg of blood? C, persistent output of greater than 100 mLs per hour of blood for the first 3 hours? Or D, persistent output of greater than 7 mLs per kg per hour of blood? Tough question here with lots of tempting choices but I'm going to go with choice D, persistent output of greater than 7 milliliters per kilogram per hour following chest tube placement. Nice. Let's go over some general guidelines for an emergent exploratory thoracotomy. It's a lot to remember, but I think it's worth going over, so I'm going to speak slowly so you can take it all in. Here they are. Initial drainage of over 20 mLs per kg, and that's usually about a liter and a half of blood, greater than 3 mLs per kg for four hours following chest tube placement, Persistent bleeding of over 200 mLs per hour for the first three hours. Persistent bleeding of 7 mLs per kg per hour following chest tube placement. Refractory shock or a chest that remains more than half full of blood on chest x-ray despite the tube insertion. Some of these numbers may seem pretty high, but don't forget that bleeding in the chest can be quite brisk. Bleeding most commonly occurs from lung parenchymal injury, but it can also be due to small or large vessel vascular injury and even cardiac injury. Thankfully, most bleeding in the chest is self-limited. And this decision is one that will be made in conjunction with your surgical colleagues, but you'll be the one at the bedside monitoring the output, so you need a good sense of when to escalate care. All right, so you got that patient up to the OR. You're ready to move on to your next patient. A 45-year-old woman with a history of hypertension and atrial fibrillation presents with a complaint of sudden onset vision loss in her right eye. She denies pain or trauma. Visual acuity is 20-20 at baseline, However, she can now only count fingers with her right eye. What is the appropriate next step? Is it A, arrange for a 24-hour follow-up with ophthalmology, B, digitally massage the globe, C, obtain a CT scan of the head without contrast, or D, perform an anterior chamber paracentesis? Hmm. So here we have painless, sudden-onset vision loss in a patient with AFib. This must be central retinal artery occlusion, which is treated with choice B, digitally massage the globe. You're right, this patient has known risk factors for CRAO, both hypertension and atrial fibrillation. Other risk factors include diabetes, valvular heart disease, arteriosclerosis, hyperlipidemia, sickle cell anemia, carotid artery disease, and vasculitis. Typically, the patient will experience marked acute vision loss and then will develop a Marcus Gunn pupil with a pale retina and cherry red macula over two to three hours. And by this point, you definitely want to have an ophthalmologist involved, as the goal is to restore blood flow in under 90 minutes, if possible, to avoid irreversible damage, which typically begins at about that point. Good call. The ophthalmologist would also help in guiding therapy. There are a few therapies to be aware of here. Medications like acetazolamide, mannitol, topical timolol, and sublingual nitro have all been used. 
You can also try having the patient hyperventilate or start the patient on carbogen to induce hyperventilation. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy has also been shown to be beneficial, but for this, of course, you need access to a specialized center. Jeff, can you remind us exactly how you would do a digital globe massage? Sure. Definitely set the tone for a solid massage with good music and candles. I'm just kidding. To perform the digital globe massage, you apply firm pressure over the patient's closed eyelid for 10 seconds, followed by 5-second interludes to dislodge the clot or move it more distal. One would expect this to be more useful in embolic CRAO episodes, as we suspect in our patient, given her history of AFib. What's up with choice D, the anterior chamber paracentesis? I've never heard of that. Thanks for bringing that up. It's definitely worth discussion. An anterior chamber paracentesis could be used to decrease intraocular pressure and thereby increase retinal perfusion pressure, which could potentially propagate the clot more distal. This could in theory limit the visual deficit, but should only be reserved for cases that are refractory to standard medical management. Interesting, and definitely something you want your ophthalmologist nearby for, since this isn't something we often go over in training. Anyway, you're up next. A 19-year-old man presents to the ED after jamming his finger while playing basketball. On exam, he has swelling and tenderness to the PIP and pain with PIP extension. An x-ray is negative for fracture. To prevent a boutonniere deformity from developing, what type of splint should the patient be placed in? Is it A, DIP and extension with PIP and MCP with full range of motion? B, DIP, PIP, and MCP all in extension? C, PIP and extension with the DIP and MCP with a full range of motion? Or D, PIP and flexion, DIP and extension, and MCP with a full range of motion? Wow, that's a real mouthful. Let me summarize. So basically, this guy jammed his finger and now has PIP pain worse with extension. This question is asking how to prevent a boutonniere deformity, which is PIP flexion and DIP hyperextension. This leads me to believe that we're worried about a central slip injury, which should be treated with choice C, PIP extension and DIP and MCP in full range of motion. Be sure to check the blog for an image, which might help you visualize the injury. And remember that the central slip inserts into the base of the middle phalanx. Along with the lateral bands, which insert into the distal phalanx, they both aid in finger extension. When the central slip is disrupted, such as by jamming your finger playing basketball, the lateral bands slip volarly over the PIP joint and hold the PIP in flexion and the DIP in extension. This usually develops 10 to 21 days after the injury, so if a central slip injury is suspected, the PIP joint should be splinted in extension prophylactically. As the other joints are typically free of injury, the DIP and MCP joints can have full range of motion. Of course, such injuries require close hand surgery follow-up, especially if a fracture is present, which may require internal fixation. The other answer choices here are also worth reviewing. Choice A, DIP extension with PIP and MCP full range of motion, is treatment for a mallet finger, which for those of you who don't remember, presents as an isolated DIP flexion injury. Choice B, DIP, PIP, and MCP extension, That's typically used for phalangeal fractures. And lastly, choice D, PIP flexion, DIP extension with full range of motion of the MCP, that's just not a common splinting position for any specific pathology. And one quick related question before we move on. Do you know the most common cause for the development of a boutonniere deformity? That's definitely rheumatoid arthritis. In RA, the chronic inflammation leads to central slip rupture, which eventually results in the boutonniere deformity. Nice job. Why don't you load up the last question of this episode? Which of the following statements regarding anticonvulsant hypersensitivity syndrome is true? Is it A, cross-reactivity between anticonvulsants is rare? B, mucous membranes are spared early in the disease? C, onset usually occurs after long-standing therapy? Or D, rash is the most common initial symptom? 
Anticonvulsant hypersensitivity syndrome, or now more broadly categorized as DRESS or drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, that typically spares the mucous membranes, which is choice B. That's right. Remember that DRESS is a potentially fatal complication of anticonvulsant therapy. The syndrome usually starts out with a week or two of nonspecific symptoms. After this period, an erythematous rash appears, usually sparing the mucous membranes. In severe cases, it can progress to full-blown toxic epidermal necrolysis, or TEN. Right, and although this question only asks about the early-stage symptoms, severe cases are associated with the classic triad of fever, rash, and internal organ involvement. Within one to two additional weeks, multi-organ failure and death can even occur. The mortality rates are as high as 10%. Treatment is, of course, cessation of that agent, along with IV steroids and immunoglobulin. Unfortunately, many anticonvulsants have been implicated as any anticonvulsant with an aromatic ring in its chemical structure can cause dress. This includes phenytoin, carbamazepine, phenobarbital, primidone, and oxcarpazabine. That was the most casual reference to an aromatic ring I've ever heard. All right, let's close out this episode with a rapid review. A Galeazzi fracture is a fracture of the middle to distal third of the radius with dislocation or subluxation of the distal radio-ulnar joint. In Galeazzi fractures, anterior interosseous nerve, or AIN, is at risk. Explore its function by testing the flexor pollicis longus and the flexor digitorum profundus by asking the patient to make an OK sign. Asking the patient to make a thumbs up sign tests the radial nerve. The ulnar nerve is innervated by the C8 and T1 nerve roots. Hypomagnesemia can be seen in patients with chronic malnutrition. This includes alcoholics, children with restricted diets, and the elderly. It's also seen in patients on diuretics, those taking aminoglycosides, and patients on PPIs. Concomitant hypokalemia is also common. Hypomagnesemia typically presents with vague symptoms, including muscle cramping and diffuse muscle weakness. More serious complications include vertigo, ataxia, seizures, increased reflexes, and cardiac conduction abnormalities, including AFib, PVCs, and even VTAC. Indications for emergent thoracotomy in patients with a traumatic hemothorax includes initial chest tube drainage of over 20 milliliters per kilogram of blood, greater than 3 milliliters per kilogram per hour of blood for 4 hours, persistent bleeding of over 200 milliliters per hour for 3 hours, persistent bleeding of 7 milliliters per kilogram per hour, refractory shock, or a chest that remains more than half full of blood on chest x-ray despite tube insertion. Traumatic hemothorax is usually due to lung parenchymal injury, which is usually self-limited. It may also be due to small or large vessel vascular injury and even cardiac injury. Central retinal artery occlusion risk factors include hypertension, atrial fibrillation, diabetes, valvular heart disease, arteriosclerosis, hyperlipidemia, sickle cell anemia, carotid artery disease, and vasculitis. CRAO typically presents with acute painless vision loss, followed by the development of a Marcus Gunn pupil. On exam, you would expect a pale retina and cherry red macula. Treatment for CRAO includes digital globe massage and medications like acetazolamide, mannitol, topical timolol, and sublingual nitro. More advanced measures include hyperbaric oxygen and anterior chamber paracentesis. A boutonniere deformity, which has PIP flexion and DIP extension, is most commonly caused by rheumatoid arthritis, but may also be caused by trauma. In the traumatic setting, it's typically caused by a central slip injury. To treat presumed traumatic central slip injury, splint the patient in PIP extension, leaving the DIP and MCP to be in full range of motion. If there is an associated fracture, internal surgical fixation may be required. Anticonvulsant hypersensitivity syndrome, now more broadly classified under DRESS, presents with a one to two week period of nonspecific symptoms followed by diffuse erythematous rash, which initially spares mucous membranes but may progress to DEN. 
Severe cases are associated with fever, rash, and internal organ involvement, which carries a 10% mortality. Treatment for DRESS is with IV steroids and immunoglobulin, in addition to supportive care and cessation of the offending agent. All right, so that wraps up the Rapid Review and Roshcast, episode number 21. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast for more high-yield pearls, and see you next time.